Most of you like that idea. Um, thank you. And just because Mary and I are just now back from North Carolina and seeing um, our family there, <clears throat> a brief update. We had a great time with the grandkids. I had some good conversation with my son, not as much as I would like. Um, and the situation there is still pretty awful. Um, but God is manifesting himself in various ways. Um, the time with the grandkids was an amazing blessing for the two of us. We had more fun and enjoyed them more sincerely than we have for quite a long time. So we were kind of fearful going into that. We also met with the in-laws again and had a wonderful time. Um, they're believers and um, truly walk after the Lord. And so it was good for me particularly to have a chance to sit down with uh, Nathaniel's wife, Megan's um, father-in-law, or father, not father, Nathaniel's father-in-law, <laughs> and uh, have a good discussion about how they're praying um, for their daughter and how um, we can continue to pray. And so we want to continue to lift uh, that family up. And I'm so grateful to you for all the support you have given Mary and I and the family in your prayers. I, I cannot express to you enough how much that means. I'd like for you to take your Bibles, and if you don't have your own, reach for one of the pew Bibles. And I'd like to have you turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. You know, it, it really is a beautiful sound to hear people turning in their Bibles, the pages that you hear turning. I was reminded of that in, uh, by a pastor in North Carolina, a church that we went to while we were there. Um, he asked people to open their Bibles, and then there was this great fluttering that took place. They don't have the nearly the acoustics that we have, but there was this great fluttering that took place, and he said that very same thing. Wow. What a beautiful sound. People opening their Bibles. It is a beautiful sound. It is the right thing for us to do. That doesn't mean you can't use an electronic one. I do that all the time. But, all right. I'm going to read the 20th chapter, and I'd like you to follow along. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. And I am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gate. Note, wives aren't mentioned. <laughs> I really expected you to respond to that. Anyway, for in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashings of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. The people stood far off. And Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourself that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Let me pray. Father God, um, as always, I have very little worth listening to to say. Um, your word... Um, is the thing we need to hear. And I pray, Lord God, this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my own heart would be acceptable in your sight. And I pray that the words are, that are spoken are truly your words, words that you, Lord God, want us to hear. I know that you have spoken to me in these words, and I pray, Lord God, that these words speak to your people gathered here in this place today, that your name be glorified 
that we stand and sit in awe of you in reverent fear, not in any other way, but willing and ready to call you Lord. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Before I um, get to today's commands, I want to briefly review what Dan covered when he started this series of the Ten Commandments um, several weeks ago. All right, I heard that. Several of you thought, as I said the word briefly, from Paul Morgan? I don't think so. You're right, I can't do that. But I will try to be brief. Dan's main two points when he started this series are two. No, three. God's action came before the commands. Rescue and deliverance from slavery were his actions before giving these commands requiring their actions. That's a very important point. Can you hear the whisper of the gospel in that truth? Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the gospel. The thread of the gospel is from page one, word one, in this book to the very last word in the very last book. The gospel is there. All we have to do is have our eyes open and ready to hear it. God demonstrates his love. In every relationship that God establishes, he is the initiator. That's an important truth to remember. In every relationship that God initiates, he is the initiator. We don't come to God on our own merit or by our own ways of doing things or by our own thoughts or by our own desire to seek after him. In fact, when we're left to our own desires, we do exactly what the Israelites did. We wander after false gods. We put all sorts of things in the place of the altar of our life, but none of them are God until he calls us to himself. And his second point was that grateful, loving, awe-filled obedience is the proper response to God's deliverance. It's not by compulsion. It's a proper response. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. He initiated. We only have the capacity to love because he initiated. Hebrews 5.9 And being made perfect, he, Jesus Christ, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Do you see the link between love and obedience? That one 
can't be there without the other. There is an inseparable link when it comes to our relationship with God that our love for God requires obedience. Why? Certainly is not to gain favor or standing or a way to try to earn our own salvation, but because we already have it. That's why we obey. God already acted. You know, it reminds me of the series we did in November on worship, and it reminds me of the definition that we gave you on worship. Worship is the joyous, awed, and reverent response. Let me say that again. Worship is the joyous, awed, and reverent response to the saving act and praiseworthy nature of God. That's what worship is. And that's what this relationship is about. God first loved us, and God gave us the capacity to love back. And he showed us the way to demonstrate that love is through obedience to his commands. Why do we struggle with that so? It seems so simple. And yet, we don't find it hardly anywhere anymore. Even the church itself, globally speaking, has moved away from that. And we as a body of believers have at times moved away from that and had to be called back in repentance to that truth. The commandments are based on God's love, His mercy, His grace toward us, His people. I know that it seems contradictory. If God loved before giving the commandments, why then give the commandments? Why is obedience to these commandments required? We can't earn our own salvation. I've already made that point. But here's the truth. They are required because every relationship, they are required because every relationship with God, with parents, with mankind, with our neighbors, requires boundaries. Now that's counterintuitive, and our culture certainly doesn't believe it. But that is the truth. Turn back with me to Exodus 19. I want you to look at verses 10 and 12 particularly, but I may read more. Exodus 19, verse 10. I'm going to actually start in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe me forever. When Moses told the words of the, of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around the mountain. Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. 
whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Now, skipping all the way back down to verse um, 23. Again, at the end of that verse, it says, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. This is the beginning of God telling Israel that he is their king, and as their king, there are proper boundaries and protocols. You don't just walk into the presence of a king. There's a way that you do that. And it is by invitation only. God has shown them over and over again that these boundaries are needed. And then here in Exodus 20, he actually outlines them in these 10 uh, commandments. He's laying out the basic boundaries, not only for relationship with him, but for relationships with everyone else. Now note, there are five, four primary relationships. Okay, so we have the relationship with God, that's verses 3 and 8 of 20. Then we have the relationship with parents, that's verse 12. Our relationship with all mankind, that's verse 13 through 15. And then our relationship with our neighbors, those who are closest to us, those who are, live close to us, that's verses 16 and 17. Now, I, I thought about this, and I think it's kind of wise maybe that we stop right at this moment before I go any further into talking about these last two commandments, and that we make sure we're on the same page when it comes to this idea of relationship. A relationship is very different than an acquaintance, okay? And I, and I think it's really critical we understand the difference. An acquaintance is simply someone you recognize. You have maybe their name, a basic cursory knowledge of who they are. It is distant, not close. It's like Israel at Mount Sinai. Remember what it says? In verse 21, the people stood far off. That's an acquaintance. That's not a relationship. An acquaintance has no obligation. It makes no demands on us. We are free to come and go as we please. There is no relationship. There are no boundaries to this particular idea of acquaintance. But a relationship is very, very different. A relationship requires boundaries. Requires them. It is close. It is not a distant. It requires respect. Mutual care. And here I think is the key. Trust. Which emerges as boundaries are maintained. Think about your marriages, those that you that are. How much of a relationship would you have if there were not boundaries to that relationship? You don't have to look very far, just go to the news, and you'll see the result of relationships, quote-unquote, that really aren't relationships. They're little more and probably less than 
acquaintances. You know, we've already seen in the prior weeks that our relationship with God is bound, has boundaries. There are three of them that we talk about here in the Ten Commandments. No other gods, no idols of any kind. Honor his name. Keep the Sabbath. Those three are critical. Not because I say they are, but because those are the three that God chose to make a point about. In our relationship with him, those are non-optional. Those are requirements or boundaries. And then we have our relationship with our parents. And this one will challenge most of us. Honor is the boundary. Honor. Kids, um, you ever say something bad about your parent to somebody else? You ever fail to thank them? Adults, you ever experience any of that in your relationships? Now, I want you to know, it doesn't say the parents are honorable. So honor them. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says, honor your parents so that your life will be long upon the earth. So it gives a benefit. And it's the first commandment that actually gives a benefit. And then we saw that our relationship with every person everywhere has boundaries. There are three. No murder, no adultery, and no stealing. Those seem almost obvious, don't they? But then we come to these last ones to the relationship boundaries required to maintain a relationship with those who are closest to us, our neighbors. And there are two. The first is not to bear false witness. And the second, not to covet anything belonging to your neighbor. Now, I want to look closely at each of these and kind of unpack them a bit. And first is not to bear false witness. We usually think that that simply means don't lie. And in fact, there are a lot of translators who have translated those, he those three Hebrew words that are used to say false or bear false witness, those three Hebrew words as lie, don't lie. But I personally think that doesn't give us the benefit of the fullness of Scripture to translate it that way. The word witness carries with it a weight much broader than simply the idea of lying. It's a legal term. It means to bring information before a magistrate or a judge to assist them in making a decision. That's what witnessing is. It's something you generally do in a court of law or before others. It means, in fact, is its meaning is, in fact, stronger even than that. It means to swear that the lie you're telling is actually true. I have, a, I have a granddaughter who really struggles with the truth. And she will swear up one side and down the other that what she's saying is true. And all the while, you know, it's not. And so having to learn to help her see the importance of truth um, has been a challenge. But my granddaughter's not the only one, so don't think you're off the hook there. You have grandkids. 
it also means that you're testifying. If you're bearing false witness, that you are testifying either by exaggerating the truth, leaving out the truth, twisting the truth. So you may have a nugget of truth in that false witness, but the majority of what you're saying is twisted in such a way that no one would be able to really discern the truth. Listen to these few verses that I have here, and <clears throat> I think it'll become very clear to you uh, how God thinks about bearing false witness. Proverbs 19, 28. A worthless witness mocks at justice, and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. Not exactly what you call positive. Proverbs 6, 16 and 19. Do you know there are seven things the Lord hates? That's how verse 16 starts. Verse 19 is the seventh of those. A false witness who breathes out lies. The Lord hates the false witness that breathes out lies. Proverbs 21.6, the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Proverbs 19.5, a false witness will not go unpunished and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Proverbs 19.19, 19, a false witness will not go unpunished and he who breathes out lies will perish. And then Proverbs 21.28, a false witness will perish. So what do you think? Lord neutral on this idea of bearing a false witness? I don't think so. I think he's pretty clear. He hates it. And so we should hate it. We should hate it in ourselves. When we approach, maybe we've got a problem with someone in the church. Something's gone wrong between our relationship, and what do we do? We go to somebody else and tell them about it. We call that gossip. But it's also bearing false witness. It is exactly the same thing. Maybe you have a problem with a neighbor, you know, and, and you tell the neighbor on the other side what's going on. What's the purpose? To build that person up or to tantalize your own sinful heart? To bear false witness means more than simply to lie. It always has an intent attached to it. It has a reason that the person is bearing the false witness. I can't give them I can't give you an exhaustive list, but let me just solidify from the verses that I gave you from Proverbs the three that stood out to me um, most. The first is to mock at justice. A false witness mocks at the idea, the concept, the reality of justice. A false witness sows discord, fightings and arguments and uh, displeasure with each other. These all come from false witness. And then the third one is to gain treasure. There's something you want. And you think by bearing false witness, I shouldn't say that that way. We think, by bearing false witness, that we can gain what it is we want. And Scripture says that's only going to lead to you perishing. It almost sounds like I'm describing our society today. 
there is an awful lot of false witness bearing going on. But if we're not to bear false witness, what are we to do? Well, I like Zechariah 8.16. I think it sums it up beautifully. Listen to it as I read it. These are the things that you shall do. Pretty simple. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Now, there aren't many places in Scripture where God uses those terms when he's speaking. I hate. But there are a few. And I think he says I hate in relationship to bearing false witness almost more than any other thing he hates. And why should we do this? Zechariah 8.16, the same verse I just read. Because God hates falsehood. That's why we should bear true witness. Because God hates falsehood. But also Proverbs 14.25. A truthful witness saves lives. A truthful witness saves lives. If Christ had not borne truthful witness about the Father, not one of us would be saved. Not one. But there's more. Let's look at the 10th commandment. Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover, covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Well, for me, I think this is pretty easy. I don't know any of you who have male and female servants, so I can check that one off. Now, some of you do have oxen and donkeys and goats, etc., but I really don't like smelly things. So that one has no attraction to me either. I don't have to worry about coveting that. You can keep your animals. <laughs> and why in the world would I ever be tempted to, cover, to con covet your wives when God gave me the best? And I mean that from a sincere heart. So, as I go through this list, then I'm good to go. You don't have anything I want. No, I'm really not good to go. Because there's more. And I love the way God does this. When he gives a list like this, what's the last thing he says? Or anything. So, just in case you think that the thing that he didn't list isn't part of the list, he gives you an all-encompassing phrase anything. So that really nice new truck that Josh Allen has and that really, really nice truck that Tom Moore has, I got to admit, there's an inch of covetousness there and I have to repent of that. And then another example I'll give you. Most of you at one time or another, have been up to Dan and Teresa's home. And you've probably stood on the deck or on the front porch. And their view is absolutely unparalleled. 
And every time I'm there, I go, I want this view. Are you sure you don't want to sell? I've always coveted a view like that. But then I go home. And when I'm home, I start to look around and I see all that God has provided. And I feel ashamed. I recognize that covetousness comes from a heart that lacks gratitude. Not an I that says, why not me too? The Me Too movement. The It's All About Me movement. I don't think so. It's all about God. And if you want to overcome covetousness, the way to do it is through gratefulness. Gratefulness that acknowledges the provision of God, not to your own heart only, but to those around you. When I look at all that God has provided, Mary and I were doing this the other day, just thinking through, you know what? Retirement has been unbelievably easy. I, I, I worried for years. You know, will we be able to eat? Will, what? And, I, and we were talking and looking, and, and God is amazing. I don't, I can't take credit for any of that. It is all of God and his providing for us. So why would I want their view over what I know God has specifically given to me? You see, gratefulness says, God, you've given and I didn't deserve. And I want to give you praise for it. I want to worship you. I want to obey you because of my gratitude to you, not because I feel like you're going to stomp me to the ground if I don't. First Peter 2.2 2. If we're not to covet, what are we to do? Because the word covet simply means to sincerely desire. Now, as it's used here in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, it means a little bit more than that. It means to covet, to possess that which you cannot lawfully own. That's the, the, the strength of it. But the New Testament uses the word covet. Now, most of the translations trans, translate it sincere desire. Because we don't want to get confused with the idea of covetousness. But the idea is exactly the same. Except that it's not a wanting that you can't legally possess. It's a wanting you should possess. 1 Peter 2.2 Like newborn infants long for, that's the word, long for, hunger for, sincerely desire for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in your salvation. To want something that you ought to have and ought to possess is right. Scripture even tells us in 1 Corinthians, sincerely desire the greater gifts. So wanting the gifts of God 
in our lives is not a wrong thing. Unless, of course, you want it in order to spend it on your own lusts. Then a good thing becomes a bad thing. There's always that tension, isn't there? So then now we come to the end of the study of the Ten Commandments, and I want you to remember three things. First, two are from Dan. God rescued and delivered the Israel out from bondage and slavery. He acted first before ever laying out the commands. So the commands are not tied to salvation. Obedient results from salvation, not to obtain it. When he gave the Israelites these Ten Commandments and he started reminding them what he had done for them, he gave us that glimpse or that whisper, if you will, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He told us his plan. We too are in bondage and slavery to sin. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, he has rescued and delivered us. Second point. These commands are not given as a means for deliverance, but to establish and maintain the boundaries needed for all of our relationships with God and with each other. That's what the commands are about. Relationships. And then third, his substitutionary sacrifice for us was provided at no cost to us. And that should then create in us an overwhelming desire to obey his commands. Sound familiar? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The same thing we've been preaching for how many years now, Jason? I don't even know. Um, a long time. <laughs> I have struggled um, with how to end this because there's the last section of 20 um, is so important. Um, and I know my time is up. That hasn't stopped me in the past. Um, <laughs> um, let me just try to briefly tell you. There are two words that are very important and something you really need to be careful to understand in this last section. After the commandments are given, the people come back to Moses again and say, don't let God speak to us, or we're going to die. Again, they're stuck in the acquaintance mode. They've not transitioned or understood what they've been told in the relationship. So they're stuck there. But there is a sentence that Moses uses there that on the surface seems like he's lost his mind or he's totally befuddled, completely confused. He says, do not fear. 
for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. I got reading that and thinking about it and thinking, wait a minute, Moses, uh, you just said do not fear, and then you say God came so that we would fear. Uh, are you taking it out of context, Moses, or what exactly is going on here? Well, this is one of those places, and I want to give you a little Bible study lesson really quickly. One of the important things you do when you read God's Word is that you always read in context. You read what is not only in front of your face, but what surrounds the narrative on both sides of what you're reading. And the second is, don't assume that you understand the words that are used. Find out if you do. Look them up in a dictionary at times. We'll do it. It's all that's needed. We make assumptions about words all the time, and it gets us in trouble. So here's why I'm saying that to you. There are actually three words used here in this passage of Scripture for this idea of fear. The first is noir. You don't have to know that. I say it because I like it to roll off my tongue. Um, you don't need to know that. What you do need to know is that's the word the Israelites are using or to describe them and how they're feeling. It is the word terrified is the best way to translate it. In fact, ESV does translate it that way. They were terrified. And that kind of fear comes from a lack of knowledge of who it is they are afraid of. It is a wrong kind of fear. Then Moses, is, Moses uses the other two kinds. The first one is Yerah, and it simply means to be terrified. It's just a, um, uh, maybe a lesser uh, strong word than than the word nuah would be. And so he's saying, do not be terrified. Don't be frightened. But then he said, God came to test you so that you would fear. And the last word he uses is the word yarar. And it means a reverent awe. It is not what we think of as the word fear. And that's why I say, even going to an English dictionary and looking at the nuances of a word's usage in English will help you. But more importantly in this context, the context itself helps you. Because you see how the people are feeling. They were terrified. They were afraid for their lives. You speak to us. Don't let God speak to us. Because if he speaks to us, we're going to die. That is so stupidly ridiculous. He just rescued them from Egypt and slavery. You think he brought you all the way out here in the desert to kill you? He could have done that in Egypt and saved a whole lot of time and energy. But that's what happens when we don't know who God is. We make judgments about him. We bear false witness about him when we don't understand who he is. Moses makes it very clear here. The kind of fear you're supposed to have and the reason God is testing you, will you fear him in reverent awe, obey him? 
because reverence and gratefulness require as a response obedience. That's as brief as I could do it. If you take nothing else away from anything I've said today, remember this. Love and reverence are inseparable when it comes to God. You don't get to be flippant with a holy God. You don't get to ignore His commands. You don't get to act like you don't need to follow them. When we act that way, it brings doubt upon the reality of our salvation. Are we in an acquaintance relationship with God? Or do we have a real relationship with God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you and you alone can take these words that my mouth has spoken, clean up things I messed up on, and implant the pure spiritual milk of your word in the lives and hearts of every person. I ask it, not that I be, receive any glory, but that you, Lord God, receive the glory that is due your name because you are the great provider. You are the rescuer of our soul. You are the one who has given us these words of life and hope. And you, Lord God, have shown us our duty. So, Heavenly Father, help us. Help us each day to remember these Ten Commandments and to put in the front of our eyes, like you commanded the Israelites to wear them on their forehead. Let us not just wear them on our forehead, but in front of our eyes, that we might keep before us all the days of our lives your word, that we might cherish the relationship with you above all earthly treasure. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.